0: Shalom, Shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 183. My name is Orban Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father, our King, Lord, we thank you once again that we are able to come together, study, and to pour ourselves into looking through your word. Lord, we know that um, this is the tool, this is the gift, this is the love letter that you've given to us so that we can be prepared so that we can be equipped so that we can be ambassadors so that we can have a message to share with other people um it's so vital that we uh, allow your words to speak to us to penetrate into our hearts into our minds and to affect our thought processes um indeed it is your very words, your promises, your scriptures, that are going to um, form the uh, bedrock and the foundation for um, allowing us to be uh, that um, witness uh, of who you are and what you've done. Um, we don't. We're positive that your words are trustable, they're reliable. Therefore, we don't have to make things up on our own. <clears throat> so, for that reason, we rely on the Holy Spirit to activate your words. Uh, but we've got to do the duty of studying them and reading them and memorizing them and meditating on them. So um, that's the uh, part that we're playing. So give us that um, heart, Lord, to, to know you and to search and to continue to press in. Um, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory of Shim Yeshua. Amen. Welcome to another episode of the uh, Live Internet Studies. My name is Arban Lyman Hanavi, and let's just jump right into the study. We've been looking through Matthew 9, 14 through 17, and we're working our way through a section um, a, a, a part of the um, Gospels, it shows up in actually three Gospels all together, um, but it's the um, parable or the story about fasting during the wedding feast, about sewing patches onto older garments, and about pouring um, new wine into old wineskins. You guys are probably familiar with the story, but I'll read it for you anyway. If you follow along on my screen, you can see it. I've got it pulled up for you here. Uh, this section right here, um, the ESV labels it a question about fasting, and it reads this way, quote, starting in verse 14, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 15, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. Verse 16, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch Tears away from the garment, and a worse tears made. And then verse 17, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled. And the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. All right, so right away from the story you can see there's a three parts to the story or to the uh, section itself There's the wedding feast. That's part one of three. There's the um, Piece of cloth. That's the second of three and then there's the wineskins thats the third of three and what I found in my um, experience is that um, and this comes from reading through Bible commentaries listening to pastor sermons and Even dialoguing with people via questions and answers, you know email things like that most um, Garden Variety, historic Christian authors and commentaries are going to um, use the part of the story about the um, the garment and the wineskins. Um, most of them don't really focus on the wedding uh, uh, part, but you know the fasting and such like that. But most are going to focus on those last two of the three examples and uh, provide some sort of a, um Commentary that indicates that what jesus is doing is that he's basically explaining that his theology his religion his truths um that he's bringing to the first century judaisms there basically they are incompatible with the current jewish worldview or the jewish uh, lifestyle or the jewish system of thought the idea where um we should be covenant keepers that we should be keeping the law of moses that we should be loyal to um the law that was handed down through moses jesus is going to bring something so radically new that it's incompatible with that current system and thus um most commentaries are going to tell you that it's necessary to discard the old in favor of the new, right? The the incompatibility of um, the study is called Judaism v. Christianity or Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another. The idea that um, Jesus is bringing Christianity and that this Christianity is not compatible with the existing judaism the, the the world system that they had um uh, you know so uh, uh clamored after or established or um you know sought to obey so we, we what we did in my um commentary which is available on my, on my website at taytator.com is we looked through um a variety of different um common christian authors well-known, well-respected authors, we looked through Pastor John, not in this order, by the way, we looked through Pastor John MacArthur, we looked through Pastor John Piper, we looked through gotquestions.org, um, and we're currently looking through um, David Guzik, Pastor David Guzik. So we've been using these commentaries, and so far, they've all been somewhat consistent in their perspective. I mean, I could have gone on and on, you know, kind of gone through, um, say, like, Pastor... Uh, um, uh, uh, pastor john calvin or whatever or luther or something some more well-known even you know long historically uh uh stand uh established christian authors pastors and things like that but i think you're probably going to find the same thing over and over again so let's conclude with um, pastor um pastor david guzix so we just read this final paragraph here last week i'll read uh this section one more time Um, and then I'll uh, conclude his section, and then we're ready to move on to some more. We're going to look eventually, let me scroll down into the commentary, we're going to look eventually get to um, a section called The Old Man, The New Man, and Messianic Judaism. We might get into that tonight. We'll see where this goes. And then finally, there's a section on my commentary that talks about a better way. In my opinion, we don't have to explain this passage as if Jesus is coming to displace the old with new the idea of replacement theology supersessionism judaism is out christianity is in um the old law is out law of moses is being replaced by the law of christ or something like that uh, old testament is out it's old new testament is in it's new um the new people of god right the church becomes the new people of god israel gets relegated to the old people of god or something like that so um but well, we eventually will get to that. Uh, but for now, let's let me con- let me back up real quick and just read what I read last week, just to kind of launch us segue into this uh, current teaching. Uh, De- Pastor David Guzik concludes. He says Jesus came to introduce something new, not to patch up something old. Again, notice he's launching from the part of the parable that talks about the old patch and new patch, sewing a, a patch. I'm sorry, old old a new patch, old cloth, sewing a patch onto new cloth. And, of course, in Jesus' example, we can see from common sense that there's going to be some problems. All of these examples are taken from everyday common sense examples that people in that day would have readily and easily understood. Um, But is it necessary to read the passages that way? I think there's some grammatical clues that it's not. In my understanding, if we read the passage at face value, and I will read all three um, sections, I'm sorry, all three versions, the gospel versions, um, a little later on down in my commentary, just before we finally read a better, uh, my own perspective. I will look at all the other um, sections and see if there's something, any wording there that might hint as to maybe really Jesus is replacing, right? Um, Old with new, something like that. But uh, Pastor David Guzik says that Jesus is introducing something new. This is what salvation is all about. In doing so, or doing this, Jesus doesn't destroy the old law. And I have to give David, uh, Pastor Guzik, uh, credit here because he says that Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. Of course, he can't say that Jesus came to destroy the law because Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, um, you know, four chapters earlier in the book that we're in now, right, we're in chapter 9 of Matthew, so if we back up five chap, four or five chapters, right, to chapter 5, so four chapters, then he says, I didn't come to do away with the law, and starting in verse 17, I came to fulfill it. Um, but, uh, and that's what the Baptist Guzik reminds us, Jesus doesn't destroy the old law, but he fulfills it. And he gives an example about an acorn fulfilling it, uh, being fulfilled when it grows into an oak tree. Um, but He goes on to say that there is a sense uh, in this little example, there is a sense in which the acorn is gone, but the purpose is fulfilled in greatness. Um, And so, (laughs) even from his example, the acorn is destroyed, because it is gone, right? I mean, if you were to dig up an an acorn tree, I don't think the original acorn remnants, you know, any part of it is there. I don't think it's in the ground anywhere. I think it really does get destroyed in the process of growing into a tree so if we were to follow pastor Gozick's analogy carried over into what jesus did with the law then essentially yeah the the, the remnants of the law are gone i mean they they've been they played a purpose they were disposable in that regard right they brought they ushered in the new and they allowed a a, a, a place for the new to thrive and to flourish at first And when we say new, of course, for Christians this means either New Testament or New Covenant or Law of Christ or New People or something like that. New promises, uh, new expectations, uh, new um, requirements, new standards even, right? But um, again, my challenge is, does what Jesus brought to the table require the destruction of Judaism slash Jewish lifestyle or the Jewish mindset? You have to remember that... Biblical Judaism was rooted in the commandments that God laid down at Sinai and the development of the Holocaust and, the, and the, um, the policies that had developed later on through the prophets in the time periods of the Old Testament, of the Tanakh, up till the time of Yeshua. And so when Yeshua hit the scene, we already had an established religion known as Judaism or Judaisms, right? Uh, owing for the different types of denominational expressions of Judaism. And yet, if a person wanted to accept Messiah, Jesus as the Messiah, and embrace his teachings, was it necessary, this is the challenge, was it necessary to throw out all of those old standards that one was already raised with as a Jewish person, as a religious Jew, or even a a common Jew? So... Really, we're asking the question, not really is Judaism and Christianity, are these two religions incompatible with one another, even though that's the name of the study. My challenge really is, is the Christian lifestyle and the Torah lifestyle incompatible with one another? Would Jesus endorse that question or that challenge? Of course, you guys have been listening to my commentaries and my teachings long enough to know that I answer in the negative. No, they are not incompatible with one another, it's not necessary to leave judaism behind as a jew if you want to embrace jesus and the proof is right in the scriptures all of the first disciples all the first apostles continue to live a jewish lifestyle and follow after messiah right paul's a good example right he didn't abandon judaism despite what you read in galatians chapter one his former lifestyles former manner of life in judaism things like that we could talk about that on a different day but the point I'm trying to um, bring up and make is that according to the book of Acts, chapter 21, there were thousands of Jewish people, religious Jews, zealous Jews, and they were all zealous for the Torah, right? They were believers in Jesus and they were zealous for the Torah. This would be a problem if the current um, um, mindset fostered in christianity held in christianity that judaism needs to go if this is true if pastor would pass of the what these fine men of god that we've been reading about if what they're saying is is you know uh entirely the most accurate way to look at these things so let's continue looking uh, this is my final um uh, analysis of pastor guzik the final words that i had in my commentary we'll just read those and then um begin to draw um this section to a close here's what i had to say these are my own words As was observed from the previous standard Christian sources already cited in this commentary, we notice Pastor David Guzik uh, interpreting Yeshua's parables as evidence of Christianity being incompatible with Judaism, therefore needing to supersede Judaism. Again, we're challenging replacement theology. We're challenging supersessionism. We're not challenging the need to replace a life of sin with a life of righteousness don't misunderstand when i go on record as saying that supersessionism and supersessionism and replacement theology and all of those theologies are really bad theologies i think they're bad theologies when i go on record as saying that i am aware of the fact that the bible teaches and implies and demonstrates uh, using various methods parables and 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 uh, stories and things like that the Bible indicates that once Jesus takes up residency inside of a person inside of a man that there is in fact a very radical change that takes place right it's it's often described as a new birth right Jesus told Nicodemus you must be born again you must be born from above um, Paul likens it to life from the dead Right, A resurrection, as it were. And the the idea is that the old man, the old nature, and we're going to talk about this later on in my commentary, but the old man is needing to die. He has to pass on. And the new man must be brought to life. Of course, this is done by God's Spirit. It's not done by human effort. But the point I'm trying to make is that replacement theology doesn't stress the need for the salvation experience in the individual life Sal- uh, supersessionism and replacement theology um seem to highlight the idea that uh judaism is out christianity's in lifestyle we don't have to keep the law of moses anymore it's mainly they focus on my, in my experience the idea that god's no longer dealing with israel anymore um almost kind of like a dispensational perspective but it's definitely this kind of um, perspective for Gentile Christians that you don't need to concern yourself with the law of Moses anymore don't worry about keeping kosher keeping the festivals keeping Sabbath you know um doing all those religious rigorous things um, you know don't worry about all that the New Testament is your new standard you're led by the Spirit and therefore, you're no longer under the law. You're free from all of those um, restrictions, right? As if the law of Moses was too restrictive. Um, you don't have to try and keep it, right? right. It's, a per- it's this perfect standard that no one could keep anyway, a millstone around your neck. Um, you don't need all that now that you're being led by the Spirit. And so, that's part of the message of replacement theology supersessionism. So, we don't need to confuse this study with Oh, but Ariel, and I get emails about this. Oh, but Ariel, yes, there's something really new, new taking place. Yes, we're going to get to that in the next section down below with Old Man, New Man. All right, so let me keep reading through this section. All right, so um, once again, I say we must ask ourselves, why would this need to be the case, right? Replacement of, Christianity, of Judaism, Christianity. Why would this need to be the case with the coming of the Jewish Messiah? I mean, it's almost like a bait and switch. You have the Jewish people... In the time period of the Tanakh, witnessing God speaking through the prophets over and over again, right, major and minor prophets, and they're explaining that this Messiah, this this promised one, is going to, you know, this King of Israel is going to come to Messiah and is going to to liberate them in a way that they can't really even fully grasp. He's going to bring peace to israel he's going to establish israel in the as a preeminent um people group right isaiah talks about how the law is going to go forth from zion and things like that and so the the jewish people had this kind of this expectation this promised one this messiah this this anointed one the son of man Who's going to um, be favorable towards Israel's interests, right? Israel wants to keep Torah. Messiah is going to bring Torah, he's going to cause it to flourish. Israel wants to be uh, out from underneath her enemies. This Messiah is going to accomplish that and, and be this champion for God and for the people and things like that. And then Jesus hits the scene, and what? He's the Messiah, at least we believe he is. I'm speaking as if I'm a first century Jew. He claims to be the Messiah, right? And he's got all these miracles, and these wonderful teachings, and he's obviously anointed, he's charismatic, he's got this power to heal, and and all these things. And yet, the message he's bringing, are you ready for this? Instead of bringing Israel to preeminence, he's going to discard her. He's going to replace her. He's going to swap her out. He dangled this bait of, hey, I'm going to exalt you and bring bring a Torah uh, to the nations through you and with your help. But no, oops, sorry, fooled you, didn't I, I'm bringing a brand new law called the law of Christ, and brand new people, and they're called the Christians, and a new dispensation, and a new era called the New Testament, New Covenant. And so, bye-bye, law of Moses, bye-bye, old people of God, bye-bye, old standards. Um, you don't have to do any of those things anymore, you know. Out with the old, in with the new. Is that what's going on? <laughs> and, you know, that would be a horrible trick that God would have played on the Jewish people if it were true. In fact, if we're going around as Christians telling Jews today, in the 21st century, as we witness to them, that the law is out, the law of Moses is out, and that the law of Christ is in, that the, that you don't have to be a Jew anymore, you just need to worry about being a Christian, in a sense, that's what we're doing. We're fostering this whole bait-and-switch idea, which is really deceptive, Right? what was it as i say in my commentary about palestinian judaism in the first century that was ostensibly so incompatible with the message of jesus that it supposedly necessitated not a radical reformation of judaism but a supposed destruction of judaism again I understand if we're going to argue this from old man, new man, right? The Pharisaic system in the first century had its huge problems. I mean, some incompatibilities with Jesus' teachings, right? Just go back and read Matthew 23, or go forward if you're still in Matthew, right? If you're still in Matthew 9, if your Bible's open there. Just go forward to Matthew 23, where Jesus just... Lambast these leaders, right? Woe unto scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And then he just, I mean, he's going over and over again explaining how their um, their world perspective uh, was incompatible with what Jesus was teaching. But we don't need to confuse and, and be guilty of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We don't need to confuse what Jesus is criticizing with a criticism of um the law of moses at the same time it's easy if and if you catch this then you'll you won't misunderstand okay so listen what i'm about to say this is the key this is one of the keys to understanding why jesus has so many harsh words to say to the jewish leaders and yet paul can still lead a jewish lifestyle All right here's one of the keys one of the keys is that by the time of yeshua's day Judaism had devolved into this religious system that was really quite devoid of true biblical Judaism. So, we had Pharisaic Judaism as its own religion that was supposedly resting on biblical standards, like right? biblical Judaism. It was supposedly upholding the law of Moses, right? In word, it was supposedly um, um, doing what God was asking but trying to be pleasing to god living that type of lifestyle but in reality it was hypocritical it was it was a bankrupt um lifestyle it was um judgmental it was um deficient in very many many ways you you likens it to people who are like whitewashed tombs on the outside they look all polished because of their their religious observances but on the inside they're full of dead men's bones right they're corrupt Um, and they're like tombs. I mean, if you walk over them, if you encounter them, you're going to defile yourself, right? Because, you know, they look shiny and and nice and pretty on the outside. And so, this is the, um, the problem with the religious leader and the religious system in, that was uh, present in Yeshua's day, the, 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 um, the baseless hatred towards one, towards one another, the, um, the, um. the seeming need to be holier than thou uh, to make yourself look all puffed up and holy and righteous uh, would reality your heart was corrupt and, and, and dead on the inside. And so, yes, if we're going to use that example, which, again, we're going to get to that in a bit. I don't, we might get to it tonight. We might wait till next week. But the point I'm trying to stress is that that's not the system that I'm trying to focus on when I'm talking about Judaism v. Christianity. Um yes that version of pharisaic judaism needs to go and it needed to go and unfortunately it it didn't disappear in the first century it simply reconvened it at in 90 a.d at yavne and turned itself into what's now known by today as rabbinic judaism so pharisaic judaism gave rise to rabbinic judaism but um in the end um, yeah jesus message isn't compatible you can't just re you can't just re- refurbished uh pharisaic judaism rabbinic judaism expect it to work it it's got some serious problems it's necess- it it requires really a radical transformation of the person of course on the inside and then a return to biblical judaism so here's the key in case i lost you here don't confuse biblical judaism with Rabbinic Judaism. Don't confuse Rabbinic Judaism or Pharisaic Judaism, which are basically the same thing, with Biblical Judaism. Biblical Judaism is what I would say is what God expects in his, in his word, in the Bible, it's the lifestyle that God approves of. It's the righteousness and the right standard of living that God himself laid down for Israel. It's those standards of do's and don'ts that you read about in the Torah before there was all these man-made traditions and halacha and fences upon fences and what the rabbi said oh, in the name of rabbi, in the name of another rabbi, in the name of another rabbi, et etc., 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 ad nauseum. All of that nonsense that was um, built up by Yeshua's day that Jesus had to cut through. Right He had to slice through all that that really was incompatible that 's the the key to understanding my discussion here don 't confuse biblical Judaism, which is basically Torah lifestyle don 't confuse that which is good thumbs up don 't confuse that with pharisaic judaism slash rabbinic Judaism, which is bad thumbs down right that 's what needs to go so let 's keep reading my commentary. I ask, is there a better way to understand yeshua 's parables? That actually upholds the overall thrust and integrity of moshe without sacrificing the religion that had come to be known as judaism yet at the same time allows for a renewal of the heart of the person who's practicing judaism so we're talking about a challenge for someone who's actually a religious jew not just in jesus day but in today's life right in today's culture can you embrace the teachings of Yeshua, the Jesus, uh, Jesus as the Messiah, and retain your appreciation for your Jewish lifestyle? How much has to go? How much can you keep? Right. That's really going to be your challenge. That's you and God are going to have to work that out. Um, if you're a religious Jew, how steeped you are in your religious practices, your halakha, your um, personal understanding uh, and interpretations and traditions. You know what is it about? Walking out your life as a religious Jew, how much of that it has to give way and be discarded and tossed out, and how much of it can you keep? How much of the bathwater do you have to throw out uh, before you encounter the baby that you have to keep? Right, the whole analogy of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I go to say, I'm going to say, I think there is right. I think there is a way to retain a Jewish lifestyle and affirm a belief in Jesus. In fact, again they're not not withstanding the multiple hundreds and thousands of jewish people down through history who have come to embrace jesus as messiah and yet continue living their lives as religious jews not with counting those from history we have the authority of scripture we have the examples in scripture right again all the uh, first century apostles and disciples uh continued living their lives as jews if if they were living that lifestyle even when they came to embrace jesus as messiah paul is the perfect example right he didn't abandon his jewish lifestyle things like that and then we have all those thousands of jews in um, acts 21. so yes i think there is a way to um uh live your life as a jew it's called messianic judaism for the most part and i say i think it it, there there is and i'll show it to you in my quotes from uh david stern and tim hagg below but first i say let's demonstrate what I intend to be a fair approval of the main gist of what the prevailing Christian sources are trying to convey in their interpretations, right? Um, I'm going to um, give you my uh, spin on um, uh, their perspective. I mean, I've been talking about what I think they've been trying to say, but, um, or what they really say, and then let me tell you what I think they're trying to say. And I say it in this way. I say, uh, in other words, uh, in my own commentary, I say this. Surely, these sources are not 100% flawed. And again, when you're reading through um, resources, your, your Christian commentaries and things like that, you've got to take it with a grain of salt. Obviously, it's coming from men and their opinions. But on the same, uh, by the same vein, they're trustable, reliable sources. They're trustable, reliable men and women of God. So we have to give them that benefit. We don't just um, toss things out because we agree with one perspective. I don't fully agree 100% with everyone I read. I mean, I think most people would have that same perspective. You read something and you're like, okay, 80% of it sounds good, but 20% of it, I have some questions, something like that. Well, the same thing is true with these authors that we just poured through. They're not all 100% flawed, and they're not so flawed... So as to um uh facilitate tossing them out. In fact, quite the opposite. I picked the sources that I did in my example, so in my examples, so that I can demonstrate to you all sources that I find to be very, very reliable, trustable sources, and I recommend them, right? Pastor John MacArthur, Pastor David Guzik, Pastor John Piper, gotquestions.org, just to name those four that I used in this study. All of them are free all of them are uh, internet accessible to anyone with internet access and all of them are very very thorough um all of them uh, provide um, uh answers to questions um uh i mean a, a very very wide range and broad offering sampling All right. in other words it's not scarce they just these these resources are very um Um, complete and uh, very thorough is the point I'm trying to make so um, they're highly highly um, they come highly um, respected and they come highly um, what's the word I'm looking for recommended all right so uh, but but they're not 100% flawed right they aren't all just uh, bankrupt so what do I say in my commentary what truth can we safely glean from them what can we learn as we look at these particular commentaries and um, I think what I'll do is we'll call it quits write that right here for tonight we'll pick this up next week and we'll start in this section entitled the old man the new man and messianic judaism and that'll do it for matthew 9:14 through 17 judaism v christianity these are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself Ariel ben Lyman Hanavima Torture to your congregation Kayla to Harvest in uh, Thornton Colorado find us online at grafting.com and join us in s- in person for our live Sabbath services but if you're not able to join us at least as i mentioned join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well these uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well youtube.com forward slash c forward slash tate torah ministries if you do hit my website uh my youtube channel there be sure to uh, take notice how to update the uh site essentially daily uploading videos daily make sure then to subscribe hit the bell for notifications leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on and be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles okay just a brief important uh, details if you'd like to join us for our live studies be sure to get access to skype somehow if you're on my website right now um uh, during the live study, and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser, and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live, because we engage in uh, live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones, and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy, engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not... Um, Take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, preferably consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, Thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to Exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity, and continue to work through the verses that we had um, introduced. Uh, last week, we're revisiting the passages that we originally had listed in paper two in my study here uh, Available on my website. And um, as you can see on my screen, there's this t- table that karm uh, put together entitled it, Originally, the table had all three persons of the Godhead Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I just Snipped out the part that says Holy Spirit like you can see on my screen and the way we Interact with the table Very simple is that on the left hand column or pillar there is a label or a title or an attribute or a name or something like that in action like you can see on my screen and um it corresponds with a passage or passages on the right side column or table um that talks about where we find that and of course this isn't exhaustive you can see there's only maybe a dozen here but, I mean, we could make this so much longer if we needed to. And I encourage you to do that on your own as you're reading and studying through the Bible. Be on the lookout for passages that um, that highlight an action or an attribute of God that then when you read another passage, suddenly that same action or attribute or something that would affect that verbiage is reminiscent and used to describe one of the other persons of God this is how we can begin to realize that we're serving a very complex God who is tri-personal he 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 reveals himself as in three persons even though he's one God and this is of course known in a mystery right it's, it's a whole um, mysterious theology so the Holy Spirit is called God in Acts chapter 5 we looked at that last week. So go back and listen to last week's uh, iPods uh, iTunes or um, watch the uh, the YouTube videos Let's turn now to the fact that the Holy Spirit is the Creator. We'll probably hit the Creator and maybe resurrects and maybe indwells. Maybe I think I'll try and focus on getting at least maybe two or three in each study. It won't, we won't do one each week. I could do just one each week, but I'll try to do more than one. So when we're talking about Creatorship, most people don't think of the Holy Spirit as the Creator. Now the Holy Spirit was present during the creation. If you watched last week's YouTube video, you know that I highlighted in um, Genesis 1, 1, and 2, which most of you probably have memorized, that God is the one given credit for creating the heavens and the earth, right? Elohim in the Hebrew, or Thaos in the Greek. And then the Holy Spirit is seen hovering over the surface of the waters. And the, the style of language, the, the way the Hebrew impacts the reader is such that the Holy Spirit is to be Thought of as this separate power or entity or being or person from God, and yet is God, because um, it's the Spirit of Elohim, and thus, you know, the Ruach Elohim in the Hebrew, or the Pnuma to or Theon, or something like that in the Greek. So, the, the Spirit was definitely present during creation, but was the Spirit responsible for being the Creator? In my experience, this probably isn't one of the stronger verses that ties the um, actions of the Holy Spirit or attributes of the Holy Spirit with deity or godhood because of the verbiage in that we're going to read about. Let's pick up these pick up the the passages. The first one was, was Job 33.4. three four. So um, let's zoom in on the verse. Oops that one again there we go job 33 verse 4 reads this way the spirit of god has made me and the breath of the almighty gives me life and in this sense if we just take this version of the bible csv and we turn to interpret the words at face value it sounds like job is giving creatorship to the spirit as if it was the spirit of god who created him Turning that word made into um into as if he created. In fact, if we were to look at the um the Hebrew Ruch El Asita. I'm sorry, Asat Asatni. Um ruach El Asatni. The Spirit has done this. He performed this action. The Asa, the root word there, this third word right there. Um the Spirit did this. The Spirit uh, is the one that made me, me, asat me. He made me. And the word asa is usually translated as something that's to be done or or performed in action. So, at face value, it looks like this is what Job is saying. The Spirit has, in fact, made me. The Spirit um, created me. But he, in poetic fashion, he says, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So, we could almost say that is job really saying that the spirit created me because it's the spirit that gives him life well yes it's god breathing his spirit into job right remember in the genesis account god breathes into adam and he becomes a living creature a living being so we know that this is true but it isn't the spirit of god in the genesis account that is prominent in the creation of man, it's more the Elohim, the God, who is the creator, and then the um, Spirit of God is the one that gets breathed into the nostrils of this newly created man. So, is Job saying definitely that the Spirit of God created him? Well, in non-poetic fashion, if we turn this back into prose, uh, you know, just simple narrative, yeah, I suppose he is saying God, the Spirit of God created him, right, using that Hebrew verb asa. But otherwise, this is more poetry, and that's the way I interact with it. Um, you're welcome to disagree with me on this one. Uh, this isn't the one I'm going to follow my sword for. It's not like a hard, fast. This isn't one of the um, what we might call a slam dunk passage for proof that the spirit of God is the creator. That's the point I'm trying to bring up. Um, but I think it's more poetry. I mean, in other words, I think Job's just trying to illustrate, demonstrate um, poetically. Uh, it's the spirit of God that. Uh, causes him to have life and when it say made there he means he made him to come uh to have life and to, to 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 breathe and to move and things like that that that's the way i interpret the passage but uh again if you want to disagree with me on that one that's fine the um next passage is job twenty six thirteen in this section on um the spirit being the creator uh, Job begins speaking he says by his wind the heavens were made fair His hand pierced the fleeing serpent and those of you who know a little bit of hebrew know that this english word wind in the hebrew is the uh hebrew word ruach and so in verse 10 it says by his spirit it's it's the um it's the genitive case indicating possessive by the spirit of him the uh, the vuv at the very end of the letter of the um uh hebrew word right there uh with the o sound over it um this indicates the the, the genitive the, uh, the the possessive by his spirit or by the spirit of him and ruach is the hebrew word for spirit but it's also the hebrew word for wind or breath so going back over in the english we could translate this a few different ways we could say by his spirit the heavens were made fair because say by his breath the heavens were made fair and again look at this word made in the english made right we already looked at in the, in the previous verse how that it's the word asa and it has to do with has to um it, it conjures up the idea of making or doing something some action a very basic action word in the hebrew but this time um it's a different verb this word um in the uh the hebrew here uh it, it doesn't have to indicate making. In fact, let's look at some parallel renderings of this uh, verse, and we'll begin to see that there are different ways to interpret. This isn't really made. Isn't made this is made fair. The heavens were made fair. The shamayim where, um, uh, is the subject of the shi'fra. Um, let's take a look at some different uh, translations and you'll be able to begin to see this so these are all um, uh, different translations let me blow that up a little bit there we go of job 26:13 um, we have the um, see all right try that again there we go we have the NIV uh, by his breath the skies became fair his hand piercing the gliding serpent notice became it doesn't say made they became fair. The New Living Translation. His spirit made the heavens beautiful. So we have the verb as made here, and the heavens are still the, um, the, the the ones receiving the action of the verb. The ESV we already read. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. The reading study Bible. By his breath, the skies were cleared. The KJV. By his spirit, he hath garnished the heavens. new KJV. He adorned the heavens. Uh, NESB. By his breath, the heavens are cleared. Um, same thing with NESB nineteen ninety-five and nineteen seventy-seven. The Amplified Bible: By his breath, the heavens are cleared. Uh, Christian Standard: Heavens gain their beauty. Uh, we can keep kind of scrolling down, and we can get the the sense now that there are many different verb words that we could use for this word the original word um shifra that we saw um to describe the action taking place in other words the point i'm trying to emphasize is that it's not the generic asa word that we would normally find if we're talking about someone doing something right performing a basic action we find a bunch of different words uh supplied to help us understand what's going what's taking place in the Hebrew. Indeed, um let's just jump back over to uh that verse. I'll click on the um the Hebrew shefra and you can see here um right here at Strong's number uh 8235 and it's um shifra. It's a noun feminine the root is um uh shifra, is fairness or clearness of sky. I say noun here um, because we're talking about God doing something to us to the heavens or making them into a certain way. Um uh from the root word shafar, uh fairness, clearness of sky, he cleared the skies, right? Um he blew away the uh the, the, the dust. Uh the, by his breath the sky becomes fair, um, becomes right. So um The whole point in bringing up this particular uh, uh, verse or verb is to show that this isn't really, again, a strong verse that shows that it's the Spirit creating anything, right? It's not really even a creation worded passage, at least it's not in my opinion. It's more just a description. Again, it's poetic. But it's a description of God's spirit beautifying things. He he made things look very lovely. Uh he cleaned up the sky. I mean, it was it was um uh let's say go back and look at the verse uh second here. Um by his when the heavens were made fair, his hand piercing the fling serpent. I mean the fling serpent, what 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 event is he even talking about? Is this a creation account? Doesn't seem like it. So this doesn't have to be really interpreted as a creation verse. In my opinion, uh, like I said, we, we, it could if you wanted to, if we wanted to to continue to really go down that road. But otherwise, um, this this word shifra isn't even really a verb; um, it's a noun. Uh, uh, and so, I mean, but it sounds like a verb. It's, it's or it or seems like playing the part of a verb, right? The winds were made fair; they became fair. So. Um again take it for what you will if you want to call this a, a creation passage I'm fine with that um, but again it's not a hard sell to me and it's not um a slam dunk passage um at least that's not the way I interpret it so but there are other passages there are other passages um we don't have to we don't have to say well wow gosh we 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 bombed on that one right that was a that was a bomb that was a um fail right um guess the Holy Spirit isn't the creator after all. Uh, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't have other attributes and he doesn't perform other actions that are um consistent with or equal with uh, things that God can do so let's look at them um the next one is that God the Spirit resurrects and we'll see this in Romans 8 11. so let's look at uh, the book of Romans and um, examine it and this is going to be a passage that we're probably going to spend a lot more time on so in Romans 8 this is a wonderful chapter spirit chapter if you ever have some time and you want to set aside time to do this, don't just do this in your um, like spare time, like you got five minutes while you're waiting for the bus. You want to set aside time to do this. Um, sit down and read Romans chapter 8 and focus on the Holy Spirit. You can even look up all the references to the Spirit in a concordance. You can do this with a computer as well or a smartphone um, that has a Bible app built in or that you downloaded. Um, not built in. I don't think any smartphones have Bible apps built in. But The point is that this particular chapter of Paul is a very heavy, um, spirit-infused passage. It's got a lot of spirit references. In fact, if I remember correctly, it contains the most number of references to the Holy Spirit in one chapter in anywhere in the New Testament. So it's a great uh, chapter to, to meditate on. So, um, But when we drop down into the passage, uh, which verse did I say it was? Let me look again real quick. It's verse 11. Okay, so if we drop down, uh, he talks about the Spirit, right? Living according to the Spirit, setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, and things like that. Um, And it's within this um, context of having this discussion about the Spirit that he begins to um, introduce this idea of being pleasing to God, Um, And living a life of righteousness and then he drops these words into our spirit pun intended He says if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you Then he who he doesn't say then but that's the force of the uh, the the, um, Word here after the comma he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit Who dwells in you? okay so At face value, again, this is a verse that's um, teaching us quite plainly that it's the Spirit who's responsible for raising Jesus from the dead. And yet, we already know from looking at other passages, and you probably already know this yourself from reading through your own Bible, that God is given most of the credit for raising Jesus messiah from the dead in fact that's kind of the standard answer the base foundation answer that shows up in most places in the new testament who raised jesus from the dead most of the passages are going to give credit to god the father but there's a few like this one where it says the spirit of him who raised jesus from the dead the spirit of god who raised uh, jesus from the dead the spirit of him who raised jesus from the dead the spirit of the one who raised so now ask yourself if god is a spirit Why did Paul have to say the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead? Again, a Unitarian would say, who raised Jesus from the dead? God raised Jesus from the dead. The spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. The spirit of God is God himself. This is a Unitarian answer, a Unitarian understanding of the passage. Because again, uh, it says the spirit of of him. uh, He's the one, in fact, later on, um, Paul's going to say... all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And are we talking the Holy Spirit? Or are we talking God himself? The answer is yes and yes. Um, the Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we're children of God. Notice that this language is all triadic, right? Paul, in my opinion, is, but the Unitarian would say no. But um, Paul relies on the word God quite heavily, right? The Greek word is theos. But notice in 15, without getting straying too far from what we're looking at as far as Holy Spirit being the one who resurrects, it's the Spirit who causes us to cry, Abba, Father, right? It's the Spirit of God the Father. So, um, but the Holy Spirit, and go back up to verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 11 here, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead. If this Spirit dwells in you, obviously we are talking about the Holy Spirit. But the question and the challenge to both Unitarians and Trinitarians, right, is it necessary to interpret Paul's phrase, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, as a separate person instead of just being really the one person of God? And my answer is a little bit more nuanced than you might think. The Bible gives us the picture of God as a spirit and at the same time, God being able to send His Spirit to perform activities and actions on His behalf as the Spirit, like in Genesis 1, 1, and 2. God creates the heavens and the earth, and then the Spirit of God hovers over the surface of the waters. Here we have similar wording and similar um, logic, I believe god is the one who raised jesus from the dead and yet paul says it's the spirit of him who raised jesus from the dead that dwells in you is you know we could say that god is dwelling in you yes that's true and we are going to eventually say that christ dwells in you in other passages as well to make matters a little more challenging to the unitarian but we trinitarians we don't have a problem with this we see that the spirit of god is very deity he's full god he has full Identity he shares the same nature as God the same essence as God He is to be worshipped as God and recognized as God and yet That's not the same thing as saying that he is God the father. We say that the Holy Spirit is God the Holy Spirit Understand my my different different there. Uh, It's very uh, important that Trinitarians stress over and over again the distinction between one what which is God, or the being, and three Whos, which are the persons, it would be inconsistent and um, uh, actually, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for, illogical or something to that effect. Um, If we were saying that God is one God and yet three, He's three gods, or if Trinitarians were teaching that God is one person yet three persons, that would be an um, incoherent, that's the word I was looking for earlier. That would be an incoherent logic statement. and In fact, that's what our uh, detractors and those who want to challenge the Trinitarian model, that's what they often accuse us of believing is in three gods, but we don't say we believe in three gods. Or they say that the three persons... Um, are incoherent logic because how can you have one person who's God and yet three persons are God? But we're not saying that the one person who is God is three persons. So be careful in the way that you word your as a Trinitarian. Be careful in the way that you articulate your argument. God is one what one being, and yet He is three persons. Three who's each person is a separate and distinct person. And this is best expressed. I'll put this uh graphic into the uh the video here. You can see this little Trinity shield. Um, you're right, it's a triangle, and you've got um God is uh let me see. It's you've got the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but you've got the father is not the son the son is not the holy spirit the holy spirit is not the father so it's a play and a dance and a harmony between the is's and the is nots that's where we have the idea of one what and three who's and that's how we keep our logic coherent and consistent and um uh, compatible with what the bible is actually teaching it teaches us here and uh, again, this is one of those uh, verses where we're going to be seeing this. So, um, let's see. Let me just continue to uh, work through some of this uh, passage here in Romans. I don't think I'll move on to the um, to the uh, John passage tonight. Uh, we'll keep it a little short. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh... Uh, uh, but so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And then in verse thirteen, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if the spirit but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Um you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in fear, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba Father. Notice the language that Paul uses throughout these um throughout this section is best understood as being possible that God is sending some aspect or someone – some people are going to say something – into the life of believers. This is where Unitarians would say, well, see, this makes sense if you're talking about the Holy Spirit as a gift or an attribute that God bestows upon His children. It doesn't have to be a person that comes to live inside of us. But, um, uh, let me see… Is this translated as this? No. Um, this is one of the cases, let me just click on the, this word right here, auto, auto, in the Greek. Um, this is a personal pronoun, not a demonstrative pronoun. Uh, it It, it uh, is defined as self-emphatic he, she, or it, used for the third-person pronoun. Um, but um, it's a personal pronoun, and it's used to indicate personhood. So when we have in verse um uh let's see let me back up again sorry in verse 16 Paul writes the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God the translation in the Hebrew I'm sorry in the in the English of the ESV says the spirit himself Autotoponuma is the greek the spirit himself um, I know the the, the probably the, Je- the Jehovah's Witnesses version is going to say the spirit itself or something like that. Um, but the point is that the Greek isn't doesn't show up in a demonstrative pronoun here. It shows up as a possessive pronoun, and so I think it's I think it's more accurate to translate the spirit himself rather than the spirit itself uh, bears witness. In fact, let's just do this. Let's close by looking at uh this passage in um the um job's witnesses version so bear with me i didn't have this open earlier but i've got the Job's witnesses bookmarked uh so let's see new world translation and we want to go to the christian greek scriptures and we want to go to romans and let's look at chapter 8 and which verse did we say we're in uh romans 8 verse 16 Let's see what they have to say and yeah i i figured that's what they would say uh you can see it right here on your screen the spirit itself bears witness witness with our spirit that we are god's children and they've got a little footnote so let's see what their footnote says if i click on it and the footnote doesn't want to come up uh let's see they've got some commentary off the side here Um let's read what it says. The spirit itself bears witness with our spirit. Here the Greek word for spirit pneuma appears twice, but with the different meanings, and they talk about seeing their glossary. The spirit itself refers to God's Holy Spirit or active force. You guys already know that the um Jehovah's Witnesses do not um espouse to the personhoods of God, right? They're the Unitarian in that model. Um they think that there's God and then there's the spirit as an active force, and then Jesus is just a glorified man. A Deified man or something a divinized man, but they say the spirit itself refers to God's Holy Spirit or active force This is also the perspective about the Holy Spirit that many not all but many Unitarians hold to is that the spirit is an active force or simply Another way of saying God right when we say God's Spirit the um, New World Translation held by the Jehovah's Witnesses continues and we'll close with this tonight the expression our spirit that Paul uses refers to the dominant mental attitude of anointed Christians. So God's Holy Spirit bears witness or testifies together with the dominant attitude of anointed Christians, impelling them to respond in a positive way to what God's inspired Word says about the heavenly hope. And that's going to be their perspective, right? The Spirit itself bears witness. How do they translate the verse um, uh, that that we started out with? Um, verse 11 if if now the spirit of him who raised up jesus from the dead dwells in you the one who raised up christ jesus from the dead will also make your mortal bodies live through his spirit that resides in you so notice they don't really change any verbiage because from their perspective which is i suspect similar to the unitarian argument what paul's talking about when he says the spirit of him who raised up jesus from the dead the him is an implied uh pointing back to god So we could just fill in god's name there if now the spirit of god who raised up jesus from the dead dwells in you and again in the in the unitary model as well as this particular new world translation which is the jehovah's witnesses model the spirit is not a third person of the trinity the spirit is simply either the active force of the one true god or the spirit is just another way of describing god who himself is a spirit so it's more kind of poetic to say the spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead. It's stylistic for Paul to say the spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead. When Paul all, of course, knows, according to the Unitarian model, that, that it's, he's talking about God uh, is the one who raised up Jesus from the dead. And in, indeed, to, to, to further challenge and make it a little more difficult for the Trinitarians to argue the way out of this particular passage, there are places where Paul is going to say that God raised Jesus from the dead. Right, and he's going to say God. He's not going to say the Spirit. But in my opinion, that just helps us as Trinitarians to see the 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 um, mystery behind understanding this um, tripersonal God and this the co- the complex nature of God's um, majesty, rather than um, uh, uh, making it slam dunk argument that there is no way that there is a tripersonal God that we're dealing with. But um, we'll have to continue. Um, Uh, Looking at that at another time for now. Let's let me just jump back over to looking at the passages. I think we'll uh, Stop right now for looking at this particular aspect of the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit being the one who resurrects Next week. We'll pick up this table again with the Holy Spirit being the one who indwells But that'll do it for exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity let's just look at some liturgy real quick uh, we're go- going a bit longer in our, our study tonight those of you are with me live, live class bear with me for one moment we'll just read through the passages I'm not going to stop and explain the passages any more than um, the fact that these are future, passages at least the Isaiah chapter two passages future and it speaks about a time when the Torah is going to go forth from Jerusalem from Mount Zion and not only will Israel be privileged to be a blessing and participate in that um experience but the peoples are going to express the desire to go up to the mountain and go up to Jerusalem to worship this one God of Jacob so that they can also learn about this torah let's read this real quick and i won't max wax long isaiah 2 starting in verse 1 we're going to read verse 1 2 3 and 4 tonight the whole passage Isaiah 2 1 says, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 2 It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Verse 3 And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Wow, that's interesting right? Peoples of the nation saying, let's go learn about the God of Jacob and about his ways and walking in his paths. Isn't that what we're talking about doing right now? Why do we got to wait till the end time for this to happen? Let's just do it now, okay? Let's go and worship the God of Jacob and ask him to teach us his ways so that we can walk in his paths. Let's do it right now. The, The verse continues. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then verse 4, 4, I'm sorry, there's no 4 there. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. We know this is a future passage because currently in a dozen places around the world, men are learning and practicing war. Yeah, that's right, still going on. All right, let's go back up and read the Hebrew real quick, starting over on that side of the page. The Hebrew says, Verse 2. Verse 3. Vaho hu amim rabim, vah amru lohu, vana ele, el haradunai el bait eloheya alcov, vyorenu midl ha, be or ki, mitzion, tete torah ud varadunai mit And verse four, vashaphat Bain hagoim ha vaha ho kiach, vaho kiach la amim rabim, the, uh, hit tu harvatam, le itim, the ha ni the ma, the, I'm sorry, le me rot lo yisa goy el goy, cherev lo yilmudu, od milchama. And that'll do it for the Hebrew liturgy for tonight. Let's turn real quick to the book of Galatians, chapter two, and read these passages as well for part of our liturgy from the uh, Hebrew, uh, starting in verse um, starting in verse fifteen right here of Galatians chapter two. Paul says, "We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners." Verse sixteen. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also. Have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Powerful verses. I wish I could go back and exegete it, but... Wait a minute, I already did. Go and watch my commentary series or read my commentary on Exegete and Galatians available at my website at tatesator.com and you can understand where I think Paul's going with those particular passages. Let's go back and read the Greek real quick, starting right there. The Greek says, Heimeis you eudaioi kai uk ex ethnon Verse 16, de hati u ex me dia pistios Christu yesu Kai hemes es Christon iuson, epastusimen hina decaothomenic pistios Christu, cae uc ex ergonamu hati ex ergonamu u decaothesatai pasasarx. Verse 17, A e, de E deseduntis decaothenae in Christo yurathemen, cae autoi hamartaloi ara Christos hamartias, de, deacanas saemari, me canoita. Verse eighteen. egar ha catalusa tauta palen ochadamo. Para para batain hiautan sunestano. Verse nineteen. Ego gardianamu namu namo. Apethanon hina zheo theo zeso. Verse twenty. Christo sunestarumai zo de ego ze de en emoi christas ha de nunzo in saraki in pistezo to tu huio tu theutu apa i'm sorry agape santas me kai paradantas huper huper emu and the final pasic verse 21 uk afeto tain karntu theu a e gardianamu dikai usune ara christas dorean apethanin and that'll do it for the liturgy for tonight. Let's turn real quick to the short little video. We'll watch the video, and then after the is over, we'll simply close in prayer, okay? You ready? Here we go. Short Questions, Short Answers by Torah teacher Ariel and eBible. They provide the questions and I provide the answers. And that's the way it works. So here's our question. What was the Old Testament way of salvation? Let's talk about this very important topic for tonight. I agree with all of the eBible answers given that you might read if you were on their webpage. We Christians Affirm that Yeshua Jesus has always been the only way to salvation. However, unknown to many Christians, many religious Jews, particularly those in Paul's day, believed not in works-based salvation. They believed in an ethnic-based salvation. Uh, Allow me to explain using a popular phrase found in Paul's letter. Okay, so let's talk about this now. What is this ethnic-based salvation? Works of the law, uh, Greek is ergonomu, is actually one of the most challenging statements of Paul when read outside of the context of Paul's first-century Jewish worldview. On the one hand, mere mechanical law-keeping will never save anyone, nor will sincere law-keeping for that matter. Understand, the Torah, the law, was not given of God to provide salvation of the soul. However, it is a wonderful sanctification tool when used by the Holy Spirit, and it is a tool used to highlight and convict both regenerate and unregenerate men of sin. So, on the theological level, it's true that keeping the law does not save us. In fact, keeping the law has never saved anyone. However, the standard Christian theological discussions on law versus grace often fail to grasp Paul's 2,000-year-old historical and sociological discussions about group membership and what this meant to many first-century Jews. Let's talk about it. In Paul's day, Israel sincerely, albeit incorrectly, believed that group affiliation is what mattered most in terms of corporate salvation, both in this life and in the life to come after one died. You understand? In their understanding, belonging to, that is, getting into and staying in the family clan of Israel, was the most important detail an individual person could focus on. So, Jews, both then and now, refer to the social policies that govern Jewish life as halakha. That's their term, and it's a Hebrew word which refers to the way in which an individual or corporately, or do individually or corporately, walk out Torah in a practical manner. That's halakha. So let's talk about their halakha. The Torah has built-in God-given halakha, and this is actually true. But most often, it was the additional responsibility of Jewish leaders to determine specific group policy, etc where the Torah was silent in some matters. So they tried to make up the answers when they didn't have a clear answer. And in their segregated way of thinking, all of covenant Israel was comprised of Jewish people only, viz. Everyone in Israel was a Jew. If a non-Jew wanted to attain corporate salvation, both now and after they died, that person needed to legally convert to become a Jew first and thus join, quote, Jewish Israel, end quote. And then once they were legally recognized as Jewish, their place in the physical covenant was ostensibly maintained by keeping the Torah. That's their halakha. You guys following me? This, quote, group membership imposed Torah observance, end quote concept, is actually termed covenantal nomism. Thus, Paul's term works of law that we read about is actually a sociological and technical phrase that's used to describe the historic Jewish-only policy that forbade Gentiles from joining Israel without going through a man-made conversion policy to become a Jew. So the Gentiles had to change their ethnic status in order to be counted as covenant members. In short, this policy suggests that the Torah was and is for Jews only, And that works of the law was an ancient way of referring to Jewish identity leading to covenant faithfulness. That's what the term works of the law was referring to in Paul's letter. For Jews in the first century, God was offering a simple package deal equation. We had Jewish Israel plus Torah keeping equals corporate salvation, both in this life and in the life to come. Notice their equation. Obviously by now, Most Christians understand that this historic, theological, Jewish-only policy is at odds with the genuine gospel of God through his chosen Messiah, Yeshua, the true way of salvation, a gospel taught from Genesis to Revelation. So we can see that right away. Using this more historically accurate way of interpreting Paul's writings in the New Testament, however, we understand Paul to be opposing this first century inaccurate theological policy by saying to both Jews and Gentiles, listen up, no one gets into Israel that is is saved merely by being or becoming Jewish, and then stays in Israel by keeping the Torah. That's really the message that Paul's trying to cut across. Now, how do we know this to be the proper interpretation of Paul's writings? If we study the New Testament as an historical document alongside the other extant writings that have survived from the first century Judaism, i.e. the rabbinic commentaries, the Talmud, etc., as well as corroborate the theology of the Old Testament scriptures in proper context... Right? If we do that together, then we begin to get a more accurate picture of the pattern of theology of the first century Jewish people. And what we discover is that the Jewish concept of individual slash group salvation cannot be easily caricatured by the simplistic, quote, merit theology, and quote, the way historic Christianity has traditionally characterized Jewish devotion to Torah. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. And that'll do it for the video let's dismiss in prayer Abba, i bless your name and thank you for the study i thank you for the students and i thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts with uh those who out there are following along with these studies continue to um raise us up lord and protect us and bless us and make us a um witnesses for your word and for your great name and uh continue to carry us along by your spirit and we'll be careful to give the praise and the glory of Yeshua, yeshua Amen.